quick review, if you haven't been with us, in 2 Samuel 11, we saw David's famous fall. He saw a beautiful woman. He had a moment of decision, but he kept going down, taking the steps in an anatomy of a fall. So he sent, he inquired about her. He ultimately seized her, and he was with her. And she spoke those fateful words to David, I am pregnant. And then in 2 Samuel 11, David went into a cover-up mode. That was part two of our message. And David did everything he could to get Uriah off the battlefield to be with his wife so he could cover his sin. But Uriah was too honorable, much more honorable than David. David sunk so low that he even tried to get Uriah drunk to lose his inhibitions and be with his wife, but Uriah refused. And David sent a death warrant with Uriah. He carried a sealed letter back to the battlefield against the Ammonites, handed it to Joab. Joab read it, sent Uriah to the front of the battle lines, and Uriah was killed. The messenger came back, reported to David, told him that there were some casualties, and oh, by the way, Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And David was like, well, you know, casualties of war and all of that. Tell Joab not to feel too bad about things. It's okay. These things happen. And it seems like it was the end of the story. Maybe David sat down on his throne and thought, you know what? I got away with that one. Everything's cool. He ends up marrying Bathsheba, takes her into his house, maybe even pretends to be a type of kinsman redeemer. Well, the poor woman, you know, she's married to a foreigner. There's no family in Israel. So I'll take her in. I'll take care of her. And he married her. But what David did, end of chapter 11, final verse, was evil in the sight of the Lord. God saw every move that David had made. Because everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. So you can fool people maybe a lot of the time. There are many people that have been, become experts in pulling the wool over people's eyes and playing a game. And some people even put on a good religious game. But in the end, you are going to stand before God. And then what seem to be hidden, will be revealed. Now, the good news for Christians is that we are not under law. We are under grace. Praise the Lord. But still, we want to make sure that we're living as honest a life before the Lord as possible. And David had sunk so low that he went, up into, this he went into this cover-up plan and he's become not only adulterer, but a murderer. He's broken the Torah these two uh, laws, by the way, if you broke them in Israel, the law says you should die. Adultery and, of course, murder, you should die. So the Lord, it's his turn to sin. And the Lord sent Nathan, this is chapter 12, verse 1, to David. Nathan is the prophet that had the privilege of speaking to David about the Davidic covenant. It was those famous words, the Lord will build a house for you, David. And David was humbled by those words. And Nathan had the joy as a prophet to bring good news to David, good news of great joy about the grace of God, and that the ultimate king would come through David's line. But in the life of a prophet, sometimes you get to bring a positive message, and sometimes you have to bring a corrective message. 
and a word to pastors. I would say, as you preach through the Bible, if you make a commitment to expositional verse-by-verse teaching, it will make it unavoidable for you to deal with everything that's good and everything that's challenging. Topical preaching, I'm not against it per se, but it gives the preacher the ability to pick and choose what they want to preach on. And so you might be apt to go only towards positive passages, right? But when you go through the Bible, you get to deal with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so on Saturday night, I never have Saturday night jitters as a pastor. What am I going to preach on? What am I going to preach on? I just go to the next section of the book. It simplifies my life in some ways. (laughs) Now, Nathan comes to David, verse 1, and he said, story time, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. Basic story, rich man, poor man. Nathan comes with a parabolic story, a parable, if you will. Much like Jesus did in much of his earthly ministry, Jesus would teach in stories, He would tell a story and bring people into the story. He was the master storyteller. But a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story to bring out truths maybe about the kingdom of God or about the Messiah or even about the religious leadership in Jesus' day. And so Nathan comes with a story. And the story is about a rich man and a poor man. You'll notice in verse 27 at the end of Uh, chapter 11, that the time of mourning, first part of the verse, for Bathsheba was over. She mourned for maybe as much as a month, but probably about a week. But let me just say this to you. This is something that struck me this week, is God wasn't done mourning. You know, sometimes as people, we can just find a way to compartmentalize our sin. We can say, Okay, well, I, I've done my business, you know, I've, I've done what I'm supposed to do, and so we can move on. And of course, we know that God is faithful to forgive sin. But David hasn't confessed anything. All David has done is covered up his sin, and heaven was still mourning. There's no sign that David ever mourned for Uriah. Maybe he had a wry smile as he was sitting on his throne thinking, I got away with this. But heaven was mourning John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Write this down. This is Ezekiel 6, 9. Then those of you who escape will remember among the nations, remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I've been hurt. The King James says I've been broken. The New King James says I've been crushed. The NIV says I've been grieved and God is talking. By their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me and by their eyes, which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for all the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. God says, you hurt me. You say, is that possible for God to be hurt? Ephesians 4.30 says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The word in Greek for grieve means to hurt, to wound That's quite a thought, isn't it? Because since we are people that are under the new covenant, 
we know we have grace upon grace, and grace is inexhaustible, but on some level, and I'm not sure I even understand this theologically, God can be hurt by our actions. Do you get hurt by people's actions sometimes? Maybe you have an expectation. Maybe you think, you know, this person didn't remember this event, or they didn't pay attention to me, or whatever it may be. You feel wounded. Well, heaven feels the same, and heaven was still grieving. And so Nathan's going to come. And Nathan is going to use a story to be like a mirror in the life of David. You know, the word of God is like a mirror. It will show you the truth of who you are. It will look deep into you. The law is like a mirror. How many of you enjoy some mirrors more than others? <laughs> I've noticed that there's certain mirrors with certain lighting where I look better than other mirrors. Anybody? Can I get a witness? Anybody out? There? Yeah, so, so I spend more time in front of the favorable mirrors because they make me look better. But the word of God is a true mirror. It will show you the truth. And you may not like always what you see. On the negative side, some of the mirrors that don't have the most gracious lighting, I sometimes go, ooh, Ow! I didn't see that blemish in that other mirror. I will opt for mirror A. <laughs> if I have an option. Well, here's the story. The rich man, we remember we had rich man, poor man, had a great or very many flocks and herds. Now David's listening to the story. And as the king of Israel he would be regularly in his court presented with cases. You guys remember the wisdom of Solomon who will be his son. And people would come from far and wide to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And a king would often sit on his throne and cases would be presented to the king. And the king would make a judgment. And he even had the power of life and death in his own kingdom. So David was quite used to even the prophet coming to him. And the prophet says, the poor man, verse 3, had nothing except one little ewe lamb. That's a, a baby, uh, a female baby lamb, which he bought. Notice he bought the lamb and nourished it. So he didn't have much, but he bought this little lamb, this little ewe lamb, and he took care of it. He nourished it. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie, the Hebrew is sakab, in his bosom. And was like a daughter. The word for daughter there is baf. Uh, these combinations of lie and daughter are closely associated with Bathsheba's name. The little ewe lamb, says Nathan, as he shares the story with David, was like a daughter to this poor man. It ate from the table, drank from his cup. He cuddled with it. It was like a daughter to him. Now, Whenever you're hearing a story, you watch a good movie, what happens? When you hear about the characters of a story, you get engaged into the story. And you can start to, especially when you're listening to a written story, you can begin to picture this family. Here they are at this table. They have this fluffy little ewe lamb, really cute and cuddly. And it eats from the table. <coughs> Apparently drinks from the cup. A little gross, I don't know. 
cuddles with its master. Now, I have a little dog. Her name is Sage. She doesn't drink from my cup, but she comes relatively close. <laughs> because she waits for me to complete just about every meal I eat, whether it's oatmeal, cereal, vegetables, it doesn't matter. And she knows that when I get a little bit left in the bowl, I lay it down for sage. Oh, man. She, she just waits. And she is patient and cute, cuddly. I've been fighting that cold recently. And uh, if I'm in bed and I'm not active as I normally are, she will stay at my side until I get up and move. Faithful. Do you know in Hebrew, uh, the, in the picture language, the word for dog is actually the name Caleb. And in the Hebrew picture language, it's, it means all heart. Isn't that a great definition of a dog? They are all heart. Now, I don't know about a sheep, but I'm thinking some of the same things about this little ewe lamb. So you imagine the family, they don't have much, but there they are at the table. They're smiling, laughing together. The little ewe lamb's there like a daughter to this poor man. You can see the emotion, the beauty. And all of a sudden, Nathan introduces something else. He says, now a traveler came to the rich man. And he, the rich man, was unwilling to take from his own flock. And remember, he had much, many herds, many flocks, or his herd, to prepare for the wayfarer, verse 4, middle, who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it. That means he killed it for the man who had come to him, the traveler. All of a sudden, you know, these happy thoughts about this wonderful picture of this family and this cute little ewe lamb. And the rich man has so much and he gets one guess. Maybe it's somebody of importance. And instead of taking from his vast resources... He either, using his power and position and privilege, demanded of the poor man to give him the little lamb. You can imagine the, the family weeping and crying as he carried it off, almost like when the wicked witch takes Toto in The Wizard of Oz. You wicked old witch! Or maybe he stealthily sent somebody over to steal the poor little ewe lamb. Either way, it's disgusting and terrible. Just when you're picturing this beautiful family at this table who's poor but seems to have a, a great life together, this, this dastardly rich man, the, the villain in the story, all for the sake of taking care of his guests. Why didn't he take from his own flock? He had vast resources. He steals the one little ewe lamb? This guy's got no soul, no conscience. You can feel the king kind of moving off the edge of his throne. What? I mean, he was used to hearing cases, but this is terrible. At least Robin Hood stole from the rich to feed the poor. But this man stole from the poor to feed the rich. This is abominable. This is terrible. It's disgusting. And David's anger burned against the man, the rich man in the story. And he said to Nathan, the prophet, as the Lord lives. Now, it would seem that David hasn't really even invoked the name of the Lord for a while. In fact, 
probably as much as a year has gone by where David has suppressed the truth, tried to bury his conscience, and probably not sought the Lord at all in the last year. How could he with the dastardly deeds that he had been doing? But now, upon hearing the story of this other man's sin, this rich man in the story, oh, David is angry. And he invokes the name of the Lord in oath-type language. By the way, Bathsheba's name means daughter of, of an oath. He says, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. That man should die. Now remember, uh, David's the king. He has life and death and the power of his tongue. His anger burned greatly. He was enraged. He was as mad as a mosquito in a mannequin factory. My mother-in-law gave that to me about a week ago. I've been just, I just kept it in my pocket for the right time. And there it is. Who was he mad at? Who was he mad at? Oh, how horrible our sin looks when someone else is doing it. See, the mirror has been held up. And David's angry, and he should be. But what he doesn't realize at this very moment is that the rich man in the story is David. The poor man is Uriah. And Bathsheba is the little ewe lamb. And David is a thief and a murderer. He stole her. When he had vast resources, he had access to the complete harem of King Saul, he had multiple wives. We know with Bathsheba, he has at least eight wives at this point. So he had seven before that. What in the world was he doing? He had everything at his fingertips. God was blessing him. And he went and stole a little ewe lamb. And David pronounces the death sentence on this man in the name of the Lord. As the Lord lives, look at the end of verse 5, this man deserves to die. David has just pronounced his own death sentence. And he doesn't even know it. You know, Jesus talked about judging in the book of Matthew. And it's a verse that a lot of people like to quote, but I'm not sure they completely understand what Jesus was saying. Here's what he said. Do not judge lest you be judged, Matthew 7, verse 1. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. May I say to you, I don't know if Jesus was thinking of David at this point when he shared this, but David had a telephone pole in both his eyes. He was so blind that he could not see that he was the villain in the story. And you know, as we started this teaching in 2 Samuel 11 and moving into chapter 12, we said that 1 Corinthians 10, 6, and 11 warns us that we take heed when we read stories like this because we love 
to be bystanders. In fact, a famous American pastime is to play Monday morning quarterback, whether it's our football teams, and I notice that we do have some jerseys in here this morning. Hopefully this won't cause a church split because the Steelers and the Packers are playing tonight. And uh, I will still love you either way uh, the game goes. But anyway, that's for another time. But David has passed judgment on himself. And he also says, verse 6, And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And what? He had no compassion. The word compassion in Hebrew is kamal. It means he had no pity. He did not spare. He was not compassionate. Do you remember when Jesus went to the house of the wee little man named Zacchaeus? And Zacchaeus, you know, everybody was upset that Jesus went into the house of a sinner. And Zacchaeus said, I will pay back fourfold what I've taken. I will give half of my goods to the poor. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a child of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham, but he was lost. We have a lot of lost people in our world. And as David was angry, and he's talking of fourfold restitution, and he's, he's spoken a punishment that does not fit the crime. The law did not say if you, if you took a domesticated animal, you should die. That was not the law of Moses. You did need to make restitution, but there was no death involved in a crime like this. What's David thinking? I don't want to psychoanalyze David, but can you, can you think that maybe David is such a troubled man that he, doesn't, he can't even make a sound judgment right now? You know, when we're caught up in sin and we've buried our sin, we don't make sound judgments. We don't know how to think about things because we're dealing with our own stuff. And Nathan said to David famously, you are the man. You're so angry. You, you were brought into this story. You don't like what you heard. Take a look at the mirror. Take a good look. Look a little longer, David. You are that man. You gotta love Nathan the prophet because to be a prophet in this kind of setting, the king could just say, kill him. I don't like what he's sharing with me right now. I don't like this bad news. Get rid of him and everything that belongs to him. Nathan took a risk. And he spoke to David very unvarnished with great force and shattering words. You are that man. David had to be devastated. You ever been shattered by the word of God? You ever maybe gotten in your car or walked into church and thought, I'm cool with God. And then one of those sword swipes, because the word of God is the sword of the spirit, hits you. And all of a sudden, you got to take a look within. you got to look in that mirror that isn't your favorite mirror. And you go, ow. Ooh. I am that man. Oh, that changes 
everything because to be in a position of judgment is much more comfortable than to receive a rebuke. Now, David's greatness will be shown here because David is going to take it like a man. You know, the Bible throughout the book of Proverbs says that there's such a thing as a life-giving rebuke. If you have a friend that tells you the truth when you're in trouble, thank God for that friend. Don't seek out just people who tell you what you want to hear because you won't be healthy. You should seek out people who will speak the truth to you and speak it to you in love. And by the way, if you're on the side of giving a rebuke, we always give a rebuke in gentleness and looking to yourselves lest you also fall. We could all fall in a microsecond. So even if we're following Matthew 18 and we have to go to someone and share the truth, we still have to share it with the honesty of knowing how we have feet of clay as well. And so Nathan has spoken those devastating words. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Maybe David had gotten a little too big for his bridges. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we get in a spot, we think, you know what, I am pretty good. Look what I've done. This is what happened to King Nebi, K. Netzer, for you VeggieTale fans. <laughs> He's walking on his patio. Look at this great Babylon that I have built. Man, I'm good. Real good. And as the words were departing from his mouth, the God made his nails grow long. He's the first uh, rock and roll star of all history. Long hair, just kidding. <laughs> and he apparently ate grass for seven years. <laughs> Would it take seven years of eating grass for you to figure it out? Apparently it did for Nebuchadnezzar. And then he made that great confession. Oh, there's no one like the God of the Hebrews. Yeah, that's right. Your very life breath is in his hand. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel, verse 8, and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. I would have opened the floodgates of heaven to bless you. But what did you do? You stole the poor man's ewe lamb. Instead of being the shepherd of Israel, caring for the flock, you became the wolf. You did not represent me. You were supposed to be the man after God's own heart, but you failed. I gave you a nation that was divided and that nation became united. I gave you the ark, the palace, the capital in Jerusalem, powerful and successful kingdom. You won battle after battle. Yet you looked past all these blessings for 15 minutes of pleasure. How many people do you think in our world who have fallen and looked back on the steps, the anatomy of that fall would say, oh my goodness, I had blinders on. 
I looked past everything that God had given me and focused on this one thing I didn't have and it became my downfall. It's human nature. And so David has been confronted that he lacks compassion, which I have many verses I could share to you, with you, but compassion is really love in action. Colossians 3.12 says we are to put on a heart of compassion. James 5.11 says the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. When you lose compassion, you've lost just about everything. Would you agree? Sometimes we look at our world and we say, where's the compassion? And the one thing that David noted in the story is the rich man lacked compassion and that's what David lacked. Had he thought it through, he never would have done this. It's my understanding of one of the graces the church has taught over the years is that whenever you're tempted to sin, you should look down the road and see where that sin's going to lead you before you take any steps down that road. It's a means of grace. In other words, for many of us, we've probably walked down the same road multiple times and hit our head at the end of the road on the signpost. Do you need to walk down the same road again? Let's just try it one more time to see if anything's different. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm convinced. And so you look down the road in the, in the moment of temptation, this is hard to do, but in the moment of temptation, instead of looking past all your blessings, look at your blessings and look down the road and see, if I do this thing, where is it going to lead me? And I tell you what, if you think it through, you probably won't walk down that road. There's a story about a man, he's got a drinking problem and he goes and sees his counselor and he says, yeah, I gave in two or three times this week. I keep falling, man, into drinking. So the counselor says, well, what do you do after you get off work? Well, I get off work and I walk home and I walk past this, this little bar, this little tavern, and the door's open and my friends are in there drinking and they're knocking back some beers and I, I get a little tempted and I think to myself, you know what? I'll just have one. And I go in with my friends and I have one, two, and three, and four, and five, and six. I just can't help it. Let's get this straight, says the counselor. So you get off work and you walk down the street and you walk down this alley and you see the open door and you see your friends in there drinking and you're tempted and you drink too much. Right, right. Here's my counsel. I'm going to write it down on a prescription piece of paper for you. Walk down a different street. Amen. <laughs> wow, what a revelation. And God, and my intention was to get through this whole chapter, but it, it's just not going to happen. So I know you guys are shocked, but look at verse 9. God says, why have you despised the word of the Lord? By doing evil in his sight. He's speaking through Nathan the prophet. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. David gets questioned by God, why? We are always wanting to ask God why. Do you know God asks why too? 
Why did you do that? Why did you despise, look at, that's a strong word, the word of the Lord. When we don't do what God says, God's word is a reflection of him. All scripture is what? Inspired by God. It's breathed out by God and it's profitable. So when you don't obey God's word, guess what? People like to put it this way. Well, I, I just didn't do what the Bible says that time. Actually, what you didn't do was what God says. I, I hear stories all the time, and look, I'm, I'm saying this as a human and with understanding who I am, that I hear a lot of people talk about, well, you know what, I love the Lord and all, but I, I just don't think I'm going to do what he says in this area of my life. Really? So let's get this straight. You love the Lord, but you're not going to do what he says. You, you believe that his word is truth, but you're not going to obey it. That's, that's what you're telling me right now. Well, it sounds a little more harsh the way you put it. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. And now, the sword, therefore, the sword, ten, shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, the sword, consequence number one, if you're taking notes, will never depart from your house. You say, oh my goodness. That, that's radical. What does that mean? God was going to repay David in kind. His house, which is part of the Davidic covenant, I will build a house for you, would be troubled by violence for the rest of David's life. But since house speaks of Israel, it's got wider implications than this, just David's house. It speaks of the nation itself. Do you know that all that Israel has suffered throughout the ages can in some sense be linked to David's fall with Bathsheba? Oh my goodness. A fourfold restitution indeed in David's house the baby that came from this adulterous relationship died. Amnon died, premature death. Absalom died, a premature death. And Adonijah was slain. We're going to read about this in the future. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Consequence number two, what David did to others would be done to his own wives and family. David's beautiful daughter Tamar was raped by her half-brother in the next chapter. David's concubines were humiliated publicly by Absalom when he captured the kingdom in chapter 16. Serious consequences. Hard medicine. Can you picture David listening to it? You know, let me just say to you guys that the greatness of David is going to come out in a different way. And since none of us are ever going to live mistake-free lives, a lot of life comes down to how you respond after you've made a mistake. Would you agree? We're all going to make mistakes. I don't like making mistakes, but they happen. 
And when we make a mistake and we fall on our face and we've skinned our knee and we've blown it, maybe we've hurt other people, the question is now, what are you going to do? You can continue down the slippery slope of the disaster or you can say, you know what? Enough is enough. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But I want you to see this. This is extremely important. David was forgiven. He deserved to die, but he would not die. The law, the Torah said, adulterers and murderers die. David wasn't going to die. But David was going to swim in consequences. The Davidic covenant to me is a sign. It's a picture of the new covenant. I said to you a few weeks ago, I believe if you're born again, you are secure and you're saved. And you're going to be with the Lord one day. But that does not mean that if you decide to sin, you are not going to get consequences. Indeed, you can be a forgiven man or woman and still get consequences. Quick illustration. It's silly, but it'll make the point. Imagine you left here and you had nothing at home and you were desperate and you went into a local market and let's say that you shoplifted like the UCLA Bruins uh, players in China, but we won't go there. But we just did. Anyway, so you get caught. You, you had a moment of weakness and you get caught. And let's say that you, go, you get before the Lord, you eat some carpet, you confess your sin, and you say, I'm sorry. Heaven forgives you. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, that does not mean that you still aren't going to go before the judge. The ultimate judge forgives you, but he doesn't, in most cases that I know of, lift consequences. Amen? They follow. God can say to us, you're forgiven of that, but you're still going to deal with the fallout. And David said, I've sinned against the Lord. His sin was first and foremost vertical. Now, we're going to have to park here, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 51 and ask the worship team to come on up. Psalm 51. So David wrote this psalm in the wake of his sin with Bathsheba and after Nathan the prophet had come to him and confronted him. And here's what David wrote. He said, 51.1 of Psalm 51.1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, notice God has compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Now, this is in the wake of it. So David, I think, is dealing with the consequences of what he had done. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Each time something happened to David's 
family or house or nation. He would have to remember the reason. And he would say, you're faithful. One writer says, David had certainly also sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba, and unnamed soldiers, but those offenses were derivative and secondary in nature. Had David not rebelled against the Lord's word, these persons would not have been murdered or abused. It's important to understand that all sin is first and foremost vertical. When we sin, we sin against the Lord. And it's also horizontal. It also affects other people. So that's why David said, it's against you that I've sinned. And in Psalm 51, I would encourage you maybe to make this your meditation this week. Maybe use it as some of your devotional reading this week. Take a look at what David says in that psalm. He rejoices about God's forgiveness. But he still has to deal with the fallout of his decisions. But remember, if the Lord kept a record of sin, who could stand? Certainly not I. But with the Lord, there's forgiveness and amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we just want to thank you for your word. It's powerful. It's sometimes sobering. It's a mirror to the soul. But you said the truth would set us free. Sometimes we have to deal with a few moments of uncomfortableness to be free, to let the truth set us free. And I, I would imagine in a room like this that there's many people who are carrying burdens and maybe things that they haven't even confessed to you. But you tell us if we confess our sin, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us. We have a great advocate on high. A Messiah was going to come from David's loins, from his own family, that would be the solution to the messes that we create. The ultimate king would come. The greater David, the son of David, to clean up the messes, to, to take our punishment at the cross. And Lord, I know David had a notion of that because he would write about it in the Psalms. Messiah was going to come. Someone from his own body would be his salvation. And thank you that, Jesus, you are our salvation. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If you've not met the Lord, or maybe you've been a prodigal, or maybe this has just hit really close to home, and you need to do some business with God. This is not, this morning was not about just checking in at a church. This morning was not about singing a few songs and going back to your quote-unquote normal life. This is about a God who cares about you and loves you and wants to give you a new start, a new beginning. And the second half of this chapter is going to be about a new beginning. It's going to be about hope where there seemed to be very little, if any. So hang on, saint, if you have fallen on your face or if you're an unbeliever here and you're not sure that God could ever forgive you, you just take some moments to seek the God who so loved you that he gave his son. While you were yet a sinner, he died for you. He knew the mistakes that you made and would make, and yet he loved you. Would you welcome his love? Would you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life? Pray it if it's you. I'm a sinner. 
and I'm sorry. I've sinned against heaven and I've hurt others. But right now, Lord, I confess my sin and I ask that you would forgive me. I believe that you died on that cross to take my shame and punishment. I believe that you rose from the dead just like you said. Would you be my Lord and be my Savior and give me a new heart and a new start? Lord, I pray you'd be just doing some spiritual surgery in this room, touching and encouraging lives, giving new beginnings, fresh starts, and that you would be glorified in this church and in our lives. I pray that in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Would you stand?